if you don't contribute, if you don't disseminate, if you don't tell anybody about the work you did, you might as well not have done it because yeah. nobody else knows you did it. It doesn't exist. Welcome to the Pass Your Passion podcast, episode 38. I'm Brian Hoffer, and today we have Rachel on biological sciences. Rachel is a professor of science and a researcher at Minnesota State University, Mankato. Rachel researches behavioral neuroendocrinology, sex and seasonal differences, steroid hormone effects in the brain as well all sorts of interesting topics, and something else that Rachel is really passionate about that was a predominant focus of our conversation is the RISE Bio program at Minnesota State University, Mankato. And RISE Bio is Research Immersive Scholastic Experience in Biology. That's the acronym. And it focuses on helping students work through the biological sciences work through the science program. Maybe they don't have a lot of familiarity in high school and the years before in a science setting. Maybe they don't have a lot of experience as researchers. And this gives them a chance early on in the university setting to really get into making it an immersive experience as the acronym spells out for students that aren't familiar with that. And it really allows for more opportunities of equity, more opportunities of bringing in new voices into the biological sciences. So Rachel talks a lot about that passion as well. So we go from research, we talk about teaching, and we talk about the RISE Bio program as well. Of course, if you'd like more information on the RISE Bio program and any of Rachel's research, you can check out the Minnesota State University Mankato website for that information. So sit back, relax, take a look in the microscope with Rachel on biological sciences on the Pass Your Passion podcast. It's really hard to do bio labs, I imagine, online, you know, go soda from your kitchen or something. Right. Yeah, no, we, I recorded actually all my lectures. Oh, so you don't live, you record them. Yeah, I record them because, well, for a number of reasons. One is what if something happens and it doesn't get recorded, right? And in the live session, I wanted, you know what, we're just going to, I'm just going to pre-record everything. And then actually for my upper level course, I, we did an in-person discussion Okay. of the material what's the air quote so, for discussion <laughs> uh i mean they the, the students answered my questions they didn't ask me any questions. so it wasn't like a real discussion i guess but um but yeah so i like i split up the class because I, I had you know 30 students i couldn't fit them all in and socially distance and all that sure so we split up the class and um yeah so i just did the discussion twice mm-hmm. right one on tuesday one on thursday my lab class we really didn't have time for lecturing yeah. because we crammed so much in, right? Cause this, the way we did it for labs was the students came every other week mm-hmm. and then on their off week, they had an online assignment of some kind. Sure. And then, you know, so like I saw each individual student every two weeks mm-hmm. and had to cram in a bunch. So 
I was basically like, hey, you guys are responsible for knowing what you're doing before you come. I'm going to do like a question answer thing to make sure you're on the same page. And then you're going to do your stuff because I don't have time to, you know, we did, we just don't have time. So that didn't work so well because they were freshmen and they have a harder time um, being self-sufficient in their learning, I will say. Yeah, management and it seems like even, even for a lecture style course, having peers next to you going, hey, can you help me out with this? I don't get it. You know, those kind of casual moments seem to think to to freshman students who don't have a solid friend group yet at a university. I imagine. Yeah. Well, and, and, and kind of on the other extreme also, but like seeing everybody else in the class coming to class and being prepared and asking questions, then you're like, Oh crap, I guess I need to study too. Right. So they didn't have that sort of, I guess, peer pressure in that sense. I mean, it's peer pressure, but in a positive way, maybe, I don't know. Peer influence. I think influence can have positive and negative to it. But yeah, it's those kind of authentic, natural moments that are just human moments that we lose in these spaces, even even when they meet in the physical space, I imagine, for the class, because it's stay away from everyone. Don't, don't go near people spread out, you know, well, and you have like these big plexiglass things between you and your lab partner. You're both wearing masks. Like you can, as the instructor, I don't even know who's asking a question because I can't see their mouth move. So like, it's just, it's really hard to interact in COVID times, I guess, even if it is in person. Yeah. So th- I think that's really, and, and especially for freshmen, right? Like o- older students, junior, seniors, you know, they know how to be a college student right? So they know how to study. They know what they need to get to do what they need to do. Yeah. But as an incoming freshman, sure. everything's new, right? And they don't know what their, what the expectation is. Cause you know, they come in with the perception that it's going to be like high school and it's very much not. And um, that was even pre pandemic. That was the issue. Right. But at least you had the social. Yeah. 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 And it seems like uh, in a science class, right. Where, where, doing is so important just seeing things physically done especially in experimentation it's so valuable to have someone next to you working with you like the fact i I imagine lab partners are an important part of science in the sense of you're you're not in this alone you're not doing the experiment alone because i imagine a lot of things of what you do you have a lab partner to save resource uh money time but it's also a learning experience for them yeah yeah i mean it's it's learning that's the buzzword right and so like you think of passive learning as somebody talking to you and you just kind of like taking it in but active learning is you're physically doing something you're doing some task and having a lab partner you bounce ideas off each other right and so it helps you learn what you don't know Mm -hmm. which is probably the hardest thing to know how do you know what you don't know right yeah. So, so by having that interaction with your lab partner in this kind of more interactive sort of such situation like a lab, um, you have more of those sorts of epiphanies, right? And, oh, I don't know that. Now I know I need to know it. So now I'm going to learn it, right? And you get, you get more of that. But, you know, in biology, it's, also, it's not just that. It's also techniques. There's no way to teach a microscope unless you've actually, like, touch one you know, or pipette or, you know, things like, you know, those very important pieces of equipment that if you're going to go into a career, you know, with a biology degree, you might be working in a lab or, you know, something you, you, you physically need to know how to use those pieces of equipment. Right. And so that's the other thing that we're doing in labs is teaching them at least at a basic level, right. 
so that if they do get a job where they need to know how to use that kind of equipment, right, they've at least touched it before. I, I think I remember in like a text or a phone call that we had where you were talking about the challenge of helping to show them how to use the microscope, right, in, in a very close way. But how can you do that under these circumstances in a safe way, right? Following the distancing rules and being able to, right? Because a lot of times, like you said, they have to see it, they have to do it, and they have to get their eye in the right angle. And I imagine they have to clean it after use between the partners because of how close they get to the microscope. Is that part of it? Yeah. I mean, I will say that we probably failed a lot of the social distancing guidelines in uh, those sorts of situations. Cause like, I, I don't know how else I'm supposed to teach them how to do something without like, well, is it in focus? I guess I have to check, right? Like I had to stick my you know eyes on the eyepiece and look, sure. um, but yeah, we did have them cleaning the scopes um, between lab sections. We actually have, we had enough scope because we had half the students in the class, right? We had enough scopes for one for everybody. Oh, nice. Okay. So for every lab section. It seems like it's uh, biology, like you were saying, is a, is a very physical, tactile type practice where it's not just having the knowledge of the lecture, like you just said there, it's that physical touch and, and the limitations of that, especially I imagine for freshmen coming in and trying to experience whether they want to have this as a career, it's, it's hard to, to be able to truly find that out if they don't have it in a, you know, they're able to get dirty with it, right? Get into it, make mistakes, try it without the, the kind of fear around them, looming around them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, that's the point of a lab class is getting them that experience, those skills. Um, and, you know, this I'm talking about an introductory biology class. Like this is the first biology class they take when they get on campus as freshmen. And for a lot of students, this makes them kind of decide whether they want to be a biology major or not. You know, I mean, this is pretty much true for probably almost every science STEM major, but for a lot of students in college in general, their freshman years where they're trying to figure it out. And a lot of freshmen will end up changing their major. I, I don't remember off the top of my head, the statistics, but one or two times, you know, before they end up finding what they want to do. And part of that is taking some of these introductory classes and go, hmm, maybe it's not for me. Or yeah, it really is for me. I like this a lot. And that's kind of part of that. And that's hard to do right now with COVID because you're not having the same experience, right? You're not working in a lab, very limited in person, mostly online, all isolated, you know, so you don't have that kind of aha moment as often because you're not getting that same experience. You know, we'll see if there's a drop off, right? I think there will be. I think a lot of freshmen will be like, heck no, I don't want to do this. I'll come back when COVID's not a thing anymore. I wonder how it's going to, to positively influence enrollment as well with, you know, how people are viewing the, the making of vaccines and the necessity to have it in the future, you know, likely should this happen again in one way or another and kind of having more people in biological sciences, it, you know, it might influence people to, to follow that career path, maybe not immediately, because of the circumstances of it. But in the long term, I wonder if there will be an increase away from other kinds of STEM, like, you know, coding and things like that, and more towards pathology. Maybe. I mean, there's there's generally a lot of interest in biology because biology is kind of a 
I guess I could call it a gateway, right? Like you could go be a biologist and a scientist, but you could also go and be a physician or, you know, some other health related field or, you know, public health or, you know, whatever you want to do, right? There's lots of different avenues that you can go to with a, a biology degree field, you know, conservation, you know, zoos, all those sorts of things. Those are all careers that you can do with a biology degree, you know? And so I, I think there's generally anyway, a lot of interest uh, I mean, you look at uh, across the country and incoming students often are biology majors. There's a lot of biology majors that changes, right, as they start taking classes and some of them decide that that's not for them. I mean, we we have probably maybe the second or third most number of students on campus, usually behind something like business or psychology. But, you know, we're up there in terms of the numbers of students interested in a biology degree because of all those different avenues, right? You get students who want to be a field biologist for, you know, the Department of Natural Resources. And then you have students who want to be a physician. And you have students that want to be, you know, go to get a PhD and be a scientist, you know, so there's there's a whole lot of avenues that you can take with a biology degree. Yeah. Do, do you feel like, you know, I, I come from the perspective of a freshman, sophomore English teacher, and I feel like often I'm selling the relevance of English and writing to them. You know, that idea of no matter your major, no matter what you're going to pursue in your careers, you're going to have to learn to write effectively, whether you're writing a biology term paper, uh, you know, a laboratory write-up in your careers, a business proposal, you know, getting grants, whatever you end up doing, even in art, you know, right, when you do some sort of write-up or interpretation of your work that you need to kind of verbalize what you're doing any of your majors, any of your careers, you're going to have to write in a genre. You're going to have to learn to do that. Do you feel like you're kind of selling biology to them at an early time? Or is it because it's so popular and maybe so impacted that you're letting them sell it to themselves and your goal is just to provide the information in the workspace to do it? Yeah, you know, I think, I mean, that's a good question. But I think to be an effective teacher, part of your job is kind of salesmanship, right? Like you want to be an engaging instructor, something that you're going to give examples of things that the students might, you know, really help them connect the dots of different hard concepts or whatever it is. And so I think, I think there's still an element of that providing interesting examples or, you know, helping them understand, especially early on, right? Because, you know, students typically will take a class that will cover things like DNA and what is a cell and, sometimes that can be really abstract. So it's our job as the instructor to kind of talk about, well, why do we care about that? You know, one of the classes I teach is a, a mixed majors course, right? So I teach biology students, but I also teach a lot of health majors. So nursing, dental hygiene, exercise, science, that kind of stuff. And a lot of what we're talking about is hard material. And unless I come up with examples and kind of illustrations for why they should care about this, right? They don't. They're just like, oh, you're just being mean and making me like study a lot. As a nurse, right? You should probably know how the human body works, right? And you're taking a human physiology class for a reason. So I need to be the one kind of telling them why this should be interesting, important, exciting. So I, I think there's still an element of that. You know, beyond teaching, I mentor a lot of students in a research lab and you know, we certainly have to talk about, well, why should we care about this project, right? What is this project telling us that, you know, maybe doesn't directly relate to things like human health, but we're learning something from it, right? And so there's a lot of that. And, and in science, especially, 
I think our job as scientists in general, but science instructors as well, is talking about the relevance of science, not just our students, but why anybody right, should care about science, at least in terms of understanding why it's important, whether you care about it or not, you know, in your daily life, it's still important, right? And so we as scientists have to be better at communicating that just in general, because I don't think we're, as a group, very good at that. It seems like that's a big part of any good teaching, like you were saying, that idea of rhetoric of not only, you know, what is happening, but why is it important? Because I think so often that because I said so or do this because I've shared this information with you is not enough to, to create a good, valuable thinker. I think back to what you said at the beginning of the conversation, that idea of I didn't know I needed to know that or I didn't know I didn't know that. Right. And then understanding the reasoning, the rationale behind it helps them see that kind of background as to how you got there, how you got that information. And I think that's so important. You talked about that, um, the mentorship, I think, is the way that you put it. Is that the RISE bio program that you were mentioning when we were? Yeah, it's actually two different aspects. So I, I have a research lab and I have undergraduate and graduate students that work with me on research projects, but I'm also involved in this uh, research program. So RISE bio is an acronym. It stands for Research Immersive Scholastic Experience in Biology. So Rise Bio sounds a lot better, uh, at least shorter. And that's actually for freshman students. So first year biology students come in, they take their classes, but they also kind of basically join this program and start learning how to do research as a scientist. Mm -hmm. um, so their first semester, they learn basic lab techniques, like the microscope we were talking about, petting, that kind of stuff. And then the second semester, they join a, we call them a research stream, where they join a, basically a research project. And they work in groups, usually groups of two, and they actually do real research projects. We don't know the answer to the project they're doing. Um, they're using new techniques and really advanced techniques, techniques that are a lot of our senior uh, biology students don't end up doing in the lab class. Um, so they're doing stuff that, as freshmen, that graduate students do. And so they're, they're, they're doing that. Um, they're getting mentored by us, so faculty, TAs, but we also have peer mentors, so students that have completed the program. And this is really um, designed for kind of that, that thing we were talking about earlier, where a lot of students change their majors a lot. They don't know what they're interested in, why they're, in, you know, whether they want to stay in science. There's a lot of students that think they want to be in science and then maybe it's not for them or they don't really know what they're getting themselves into or maybe they just don't have a social support network to really help them navigate um, the majors or the major. And that's kind of what this is designed for. So there's been a lot of studies that show that students, especially students who are first-generation students, students of, minority students of any kind, um, students who feel maybe this you know, the imposter syndrome where you don't feel like you belong, um, they tend to leave college more at a higher rate or switch majors out of science majors. Um, and so anything you can do to get them having this kind of social support network helps them continue because they feel like they belong. They feel like a scientist. And so that's kind of what this program is designed to do is to get them involved in research right away with peers and a lot of mentoring. They learn a lot uh, it's amazing how much they learn in just, you know, two semesters, but they also have this social support network. So they're more likely, we hope, I mean, that's the goal, um, to continue on in the major to feel like they 
you know, that they are a scientist, that they are a biology major, you know, and so that's a, that's a totally different aspect of mentoring that I do. Yeah. That's the Rice Bio program. I don't know. I don't know if I answered your question. Sounds like that's what I was hearing. You were kind of answering questions. I, I had kind of small questions on top that I was going to ask, and, and I think you were answering them as we were going. So you were going right. in the exact direction that, that I was anticipating with that idea of, I was going to ask if it was like an equity-minded program of students that wouldn't have access to microscopes and other expensive tools, maybe in their high school and like you said, they feel intimidated. They feel like they don't belong uh, because they maybe didn't have people growing up that were scientists. And I, and I think about our own family, a family of scientists and teachers, yep. <laughs> higher education. And, you know, it's very far from that. But I can see how if you're the first person to go to college, uh, you know, if you're the first one in your family to, to try this out, going into something this new can be daunting, like you said, that their own perception of themselves can hold them back. And by immersing them and having these kind of networks of ways that they can connect, it makes them more successful in the long run. Yeah, that's that's definitely the goal. I mean, I think everybody feels the imposter syndrome at at points, right? I, I certainly felt like that sure. at any point in my career, I felt like that, um, you know, and for a lot of students, when they don't have that social support network, they leave, right? They either leave college, they switch majors because they think they can't do it. Right. Um, and so that's the goal is that this program is really to help kind of capture those students, capture those students who could do well, but they need that extra support. And this is um, this is actually an NSF, National Science Foundation funded program. So we, um, we actually give students scholarships. So they get quite a good chunk of money to basically offset the cost of their tuition. And it's designed for students from lower income backgrounds, right? And so like you said, those students who probably didn't have access to a lot of this equipment in high school, you know, now they're going to get this very immersive experience where they're actually doing, you know, real, real world research that could be published even, right? You know, so this is something that it's kind of bridging that gap, we hope, I guess. I mean, we're, we're testing that. Um, you know, we've only gone through two groups of students through this program. It's a pretty new program. And so we are testing kind of, you know, are we actually capturing and helping the students who we're targeting? You know, we're kind of comparing that to other students in the course that in the, in the, you know, introductory biology courses that didn't partake in this program. Are we actually doing something different and helping Right. I mean, we've 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 kind of showed that we're not hurting anybody because that was the first question. Like, are we actually going to hurt them by making them do these, the, you know, these this research instead of a normal lab? But are we actually helping? And and the data suggests that we probably are. But we just the sample size is too small. We need to get some more data before we can really make that uh, that claim. A great answer from a scientist is. <laughs> enough data to make a claim. If only more people in this world would be that patient. Right. Yeah, I mean, we think we are because just from talking to the students and actually just observing the students, right? Like, so the semester or the program itself is a three semester program, right? So they do research for the second two semesters. So the first semester, they're kind of getting their feet wet, learning how to do stuff. And then they, the next two, they do research. And it's amazing how much they've changed by the time I see them day one of spring semester, their freshman year, until the end of the fall semester of their sophomore year, it's night and day. They've learned so much. They've matured so much. 
and they've accomplished so much. You know, we do um, end of program poster sessions where they make their own scientific poster and they present it and they look and talk and act like my, you know, seniors in my research lab because that's how much they've learned. And, you know, one of the things that's really beneficial to getting into research as an undergrad um, is that you really get a lot of context, right? You're learning all these kind of things and, and, and facts and concepts and things like that in, in your classes, but it doesn't ha- translate to a real world application all the time. Hopefully it does, but it doesn't always. But when you get involved in a, in a research program, now all of a sudden you're saying, oh, I learned about this way back when, and now I'm doing something with it, or I'm using this technique I learned about. And it becomes that much more powerful because now you have your own personal experience with it. And then it's like, oh, well, now I know why I'm learning this. So I'm going to like spend more time learning it because now I have a reason to learn it, right? And so you end up doing, you know, the idea is that you do better in your classes because you've had this experience. One thing I will say is in general, not every undergrad gets to work in a research lab. And those that do, they tend to be older students. So juniors and seniors, undergrads. We're targeting freshmen. So we're getting students that usually don't work in a research lab because they don't know anything, right? They don't Sorry, that was my dog. Um, uh, so they don't, you know, they haven't learned anything yet. They're, they're taking their introductory classes. They don't know much yet. So most of them don't end up working in research labs, but we're taking students right away and giving them that experience. And now they're, you know, they're doing better in their classes later. We think, we hope, again, we'll know more in a couple of years, but they're also joining research labs after the program and, you know, and, and becoming very successful so far, again, our first group of students are just finishing up their f- third year, their, their junior year. So we'll see. But anyway, so that's kind of the goal with the program and kind of getting them that experience um, in research early, early in research. It's, it sounds like, you know, what I'm hearing is the, the role of agency, right? It's, it's a conversation we have in English as well, is the more they get to be hands-on with things, the more they get to do things earlier, the more likely they are to stick with it. Just learning about the theory and you never get to apply it. It's not interesting. It's not real. It's not yours. You lose that confidence very early. But if you get a balance of the theory and the application together, then you're more likely to stick with it. It's more likely to have value to you. It's more likely to be real because you can see it. Uh, you know, it has value to it. They're, like you said, they're doing real research, real experiments. They're not doing test ones where you already have the answers. Mm-hmm. That science is not about assuming the conclusion, right? And just saying that, oh, there's an answer that we've already come up with and we're just testing that you can get to that answer as well. It's saying, how does your process look? That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, oh my gosh, they learn so much troubleshooting because science doesn't always work the way we think it's gonna work. Um, Not just hypothesis-driven stuff and your hypothesis isn't supported or whatever, but also just the technique's not working, right? And troubleshooting that for, you know, to figure out why it's not working and how to make it work and and what conditions you changed in this, you know, experiment to get at least somewhat a result, right? And that's something that they do that most students, especially in introductory biology courses, don't do because they're all labs that we've already tested 
a lot out of, right? We know exactly what the outcome is. We know what it should look like. They're giving them instructions for how to do it exactly. It's kind of a cookie cutter lab, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Or cookbook lab kind of thing. And so by having these unknowns and these labs or these, uh, these research projects where we don't know the answer, right? They're learning a lot more skills, especially troubleshooting and kind of application type skills. And again, like you like you said, right? It's the more you work with it and, and the more hands-on you are, the more valuable it is. So I do have a, a, a result, I guess, a statistic for you about this program. Um, so they, we survey them um, throughout asking them things like, you know, do you value science? Do you see yourself as a scientist? Do you want to go into career in science? Like various things like that. And very, very striking by the end of the program, our first cohort, basically almost hundred percent of them said that they wanted to go into career in science compared to our, you know, comparison group that didn't go through the program. And it was maybe 50% kind of said, maybe I want to do it kind of thing. They rated it maybe like five out of 10 versus, and and our students were like nine and a half out of 10 or something. Right. So it's a very striking difference that they see themselves as a scientist and they want to continue. Right. Maybe it's not, you know, in a research laboratory kind of thing, but they see themselves as going on in science. Um, and, and that's partially, I think because of this experience they've had. Yeah. I I wonder how, you know, we talk about this program being, um, you know, in the mindset of equity, exposing students that might be vulnerable populations to make sure that they they see it through, that they, if, you know, to empower them, to give them agency, all these things we've been talking about. I wonder how that will affect the field of science as well. Uh, I always talk to my students about that idea of there's bias in research no matter what. And the idea of what you choose to research is already biased. What you choose to research versus what you choose not to research is biased. And bias isn't always bad as long as you recognize it, mm-hmm. right? That you can recognize bias and and let it be a part of your process, but, it, you know, doing your best to control and to reduce it. But realistically, there's no such thing as no bias, right? Who funds something, why they fund it, what they fund already has inherent bias, no matter how hard we try. That's at least what I claim to my students, that there's no such thing as no bias. And to just recognize it and learn how to uh, minimize it and, and all that that I'm saying here. And I wonder how having a new group of scientists, right? You know, looking at the success of Rise Bio or any other program in the country, in the world similar to it, uh, having a new student group uh, with this equity mindset will change the field of science in what's being researched, how much attention is being given to it, which populations are being communicated with it about. You know, I'm interested to hear, you know, kind of your thoughts on that. If you've already seen this, what what you see with that connection from the the point of view of science about it? Yeah, so I think equity in science is a very big, broad topic, right? Because it covers a lot of different things. If we're talking about equity in terms of, you know, equal or equitable um, experiences, especially as an undergrad. Yeah, I I agree. Like there's going to be biases. There's going to be non-equitable experiences. What we're trying to do with this program is take some of those students that fit kind of the lower income. You know, we do try to recruit um, students of color and things like that into the program. Um, you know, and try to give them this kind of 
really valuable experience that might change their outlook on kind of their, at least their, their college career, whether that affects their eventual career, I don't know. Right. Um, but yeah, I guess I don't know. Um, I think what I was trying to kind of look at was not even at the student population, but the field of science outside of education, like looking postgraduate when these students are going into the career fields, mm -hmm. right? I, I think about, we'll, we'll talk about your research and what you're doing and why you're doing it. But of course, you have been influenced by your peers and by your own drive and interest to decide what to research or what not to research. Sure. Right? Your own biases, and bias isn't always bad, your own experiences have influenced what you do or don't research. Is that right? Yeah. To start with. Yeah. And so that's what I'm saying is with the new group of scientists, should these rise students succeed? Should they rise? And, <laughs> good, and, good and, one there. Thank you. Um, you know, that idea of how will that affect the field of science outside of education? I was kind of looking forward past that, you know, what is already being researched in science versus what doesn't get researched enough in science. And I wonder how that will change with a new group of experiences, because as scientists, you, what you choose to research is based on who you interact with, what you already know and what you experience, right. And, and what your peers are experiencing and learning. So yeah. this, well, I think, yeah. I think anytime that you have more, diversity in the types of people who are joining a field, I think you're going to get a broader, you know, just a broader contribution, right? Because you have people from different backgrounds with potentially different ideas. And so I think that's always a good thing, right? I mean, we don't want to get in a, you know, in, I guess in a rut where you're just researching the same thing, because that's not actually helpful in science, right? The idea in science is that we're thinking critically about the available data and testing it and then interpreting that data to make new ideas, right? And if we're kind of in the rut where we're just doing the same thing over and over again, that's not really generating new knowledge, right? And so having, anytime you have more people entering that arena, right, you're going to have new ideas, which was beneficial to science in any field, really. Um, you know, so in that sense, maybe, you know, I think it's hard to say because, I don't know how many of our students will end up choosing to go into science, right? They haven't graduated college yet. So that's something that we'll track um, over the years of the program. But, you know, I don't know for sure. But I think anytime you're empowering groups of people that wouldn't necessarily be choosing to go in those career paths, I think is going to be uh, potentially helpful, right? And in terms of new ideas, new uh, experiences and things like that kind of backtracking a little bit to what you talked about earlier, where they create their own projects. Mm -hmm. I think that might be an interesting connection because with, with my question, I can see how there's not enough, you know, coming back to the idea of science, there's not enough data to be able to draw a conclusion or to have even, uh, you know, a solid speculation in, in what it would look like. So in currently in the projects that they're creating, how do they create these projects? Do you give them some ideas? How do you help them to brainstorm what they're coming up with. I think that will help us start to see the picture of what might happen in the future as a result. I will say that they have, even though they're doing authentic, new, you know, unexplored research projects, we still give them a lot of guidance. Because mm -hmm. remember, they're freshmen, right? They're not, they're not PhD students or, you know, something like that. So 
the best way that the, this program or, and programs like this work is that you have an overarching question and everyone's doing similar things under that question. So basically, so what that translates to in practice with the uh, students I work with is we are working on um, a lizard species. Um, and the reason why we study this species is because they're very seasonal in terms of a lot of different things in the terms of their behavior, their physiology, their morphology, their gene expression. All of that is very, very seasonal and related to when they're breeding and when they're not. And so what my students look at is we're looking at expression of particular genes in the brain of, at, at these different extreme time points to really kind of pinpoint well, what genes might be involved in controlling these really extreme differences to kind of get that get at that question of how what genes are important in controlling this at a really general level because we have these really extreme kind of points in in this one animal's uh, lifetime where you know they're doing very very different things reproducing versus not um, and so that's the general overarching question. And so what my students, individual groups of students do is we have preliminary data looking at just all the genes that are expressed in the brain at these two different time points in just a couple individual um, organisms, and they pick one. So they pick a gene. Uh, it's something that, you know, they learn about, they learn about this gene, and then they just start experimenting on it. So they um, really are doing what's called a quantitative PCR, polymerase chain uh, reaction experiment. And basically it's like the PCR experiments you see in like CSI and things like that, except for quantitating uh, expression. And so they're basically working that up. So they're deciding, okay, I'm going to study this gene to see if it's different. And I'm going to do all the steps that require me uh, to, to complete it. And so it, everyone's doing the same sorts of projects, but they're all selecting a different gene to study and learn about. And so it's not very open-ended, right? They're not all doing totally different projects. It's possible, but more challenging with students who don't really have, you know, a, a very broad background in biology, right? It's very, they've just taken maybe one or two biology classes. So we can't really expect them to, totally come up with their own ideas, right? They certainly can, and they have lots of ideas, but we, we're, we're very much guiding them through it. Sure. It's kind of the basis of, you know, what do we typically look for in science? You know, how are we going about the process? If there are too many open ends, then they're kind of just stuck uh, like a deer in headlights. Of right. Direction do I go? What do I do with it? Now, when you talk uh, about this project and the different options they have, first, I'd like to um, maybe brag and see the anole lizards that you've yes. tested in the past. Are you proud of me that I remember the specific? I am. That's pretty good. I'm, I'm actually impressed you remembered how to pronounce it, too. I'm, I'm very proud of myself for holding on to that brag and not interrupting you. So. Yeah. <laughs> So, so it sounds like, you know, and, and the, the, this does have a point to it is this, was this influenced by your own research, right? Has your own research, are they contributing directly to your knowledge of the field? So, you know, that idea of the best way to be a scientist, like you said before, is to contribute, is to add to the conversation. That's what I was hearing before. Mm -hmm. And so are they adding to your research as a grad student would that we're working under you, right? Yeah. Idea? 
Yeah, certainly. So I'll give you an example. So I have uh, two students actually that just completed their three semesters of the Rise Bio program. Both were really excited to continue with research. They're both joining my research lab. And so they're going to take the data that they got from Rise Bio and we're going to actually continue working with it. Right. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's real data that they're able to generate and they're going to continue with that with projects. We're going to probably at least have them present their work at a national scientific meeting. Hopefully um, we'll be able to get enough data that we can actually publish it, too. So, yes, I think that there is the potential for them to contribute in a real meaningful way. But a lot of that depends on the student's interest. My first group of students that went through the program, I invited them to actually give a presentation at a national meeting that's going on literally right now, virtual, of course, but they weren't interested. I think a lot of them were probably intimidated by it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so the, the goal actually is to get the students at the very least presenting at a national forum where they can interact with other scientists at that level and contribute and get their name published in, you know, as an abstract for a meeting. So, yeah, so that is the goal. Did that answer your question? I actually don't remember the first part of your question. It seems like that's an important piece of the puzzle as well, right? You know, we talk about theory and application. That was something we addressed before. But Mm -hmm. even if you're able to apply it, if the student lacks the confidence or lacks the structure or the opportunity, right? Even if they wrote a research paper, but they're like, where do I apply? Where do I speak? Right. You're even giving them a a part of that process. I think that kind of adds a piece to the puzzle of seeing science isn't just about the theory. It's not just about the application. It's about how you communicate and share. You know, we could all always talk about how we communicate and share with the public, but also how you communicate and share with the science community and how that makes you feel a part of the science community by not only doing the work, but then sharing it with peers and feeling like you are part of the conversation. Yeah. And I've taken undergraduate students to national meetings before, and they are very intimidated by it at at the beginning, but then they go and they talk to people and they see things and they interact. And it's a totally different experience by the end of the conference, because they're actually talking to other scientists. Other scientists are interested in what they have to say. And I think it's a really valuable experience, but you know, I know from my own experience, so I had the opportunity to go to a national meeting as an undergrad and I dropped the ball and didn't because I was intimidated by it back to the imposter syndrome, right? I felt like nobody would go to talk to me. Like I'm not a scientist. Like I, you know, and I was doing undergrad research at the time, um, you know, and I regret that actually now um, because I think it would have made me a better scientist um, earlier um, because I didn't go to a conference until I was maybe a second or third year grad student, right? So I think I would have had more confidence in my abilities, you know, because I've would have been able to interact with other people. So, and at that level, right, that's different than, you know, maybe giving a presentation in a class or even presenting your research to, you know, maybe your university is giving a little tiny little undergraduate research symposium and you, you know, present your little poster there. It's different than going to a national meeting and doing it because you're talking to experts, right? And that uh, I'll say it's a, it's a bit of an ego boost, right? You feel, oh yeah, wow. I feel like I belong, right? People are listening to me. They're engaged and interested in what I have to say. And I, I think my undergrads that I've taken have really valued that experience. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited to take more and I really want these students to do that because I think it will be a very empowering experience. 
Sure. And and I imagine it gives them that kind of completion from, you know, theorizing the idea. I don't know if that's quite the right term. Forgive me for my lack of science correct terminology. <laughs> I, I was thinking, I was like, it's probably hypothesizing. That's why I brought up the doubt. But either way, from the inception of the idea is the safest sure. way to say it. Uh, yeah. All the way completion, right? To sharing it, to continue, right? That's something I talk about in English so much is how are you contributing to the conversation? Well, that's the thing, right? If you don't contribute, if you don't disseminate, if you don't tell anybody about the work you did, you might as well not have done it because yeah. nobody else knows you did it. It doesn't exist. That's why communication, you know, either in a national presentation or forum like that, or even better, publishing is so important in science because it doesn't exist until you've done it, right? Until you've done that. I keep thinking back to this idea of how things are decided, what is researched, why it's researched, and so on. And, and now, maybe from your own personal experience, you you began with these lizards. I remember back when you were in grad school. Is is that right? I, yep. It's been a long time since I've heard about <laughs> Was your advisor, I think that's the right term, was your advisor the one who influenced this? Where did you come up with this research to kind of see an attempt templated way how students of Rise Bio might come up with their own research? Is it that idea of the previous mentors and advisors are the ones who are influencing the inquiry, the questions, the research points? Oh, for sure. Definitely. And I think that's generally how most scientific kind of development works, right? You're working with a mentor very closely on particular projects. And so for me personally, I actually, I had an option when I went to graduate school um, and, and particularly to work with my advisor, you know, she was working on kind of two different avenues of research. And I chose which one based on my experience as an undergrad, I was able to do um, some field work working with lizards. And I was like, mm, that was fun. I guess I'll keep going and work in lizards again. Um, and so that was totally random, right? I could have gone either way. Both were interesting, but I was like, yeah, I like the lizards. Okay. You know, and that's kind of where it started. But, you know, in terms of the questions I'm asking, lizards are just a, a the, the model themselves, right? The, the species I'm working in is just a convenient model, right? That's why generally people use particular models in science is because they're easy to work with, or there's, you know, genetic tools available, or really they have some phenomenon that allows you to answer your question. One of the kind of hard things in science is you don't want to study necessarily, a, you know, so humans in a lot of ways are horrible models for research questions because we're not that specialized in a lot of different senses, right? We have a specialized brain for sure, but, you know, we don't see a lot of differences in seasons or whatever, right? So, for particular questions, you know, you actually want to maybe pick a different animal to study that in because you want to study an animal where what you're interested in studying has a big difference, right? So that we can detect differences when we, when we manipulate it. And so that's largely why I've continued on in lizards because I'm looking, I'm interested in kind of understanding what's regulating reproduction. And because they have these seasonal extremes in reproduction, that's why I can study these differences because there's really big differences where you study a mouse or a human, they don't have those big differences, right? And so that's really why I've continued. Um, where Rise Bio fits in is kind of looking at, well, what is the seasonal differences in the brain? And so it really stems a lot of from what I do in my lab anyway, 
those were questions that I wanted answered, right? I want to know what genes we should study and what we can manipulate next. And maybe what are some things that are involved and Rise Bio is helping me answer those questions with my undergrad, my freshman students doing those projects, right? So they're actively contributing to the program, my research program and how it might continue on in the future, because we're learning about really specific genes that they're studying. I, I don't know the exact term I want to look for. I don't know if happenstance is the right where you have these kind of two pathways and you chose one with, you know, mild curiosity and interest and you saw what was already working. And do you feel like there's a, this kind of challenge in getting out of that research inquiry of working with this specific question, with this specific, um, you know, animal, with this specific field? You know, if you wanted to shift, is it is it a great challenge to do so? Because I wonder that with the, the Rise Bio students, if they begin there and they like the process, but might be interested to research something else, how easy is it to move out of that? Because it seems like from late undergraduate all the way until your current work, you've been in the same area because it interests you. You're seeing more and more questions you can unlock, but some students might go, I really like this process. I like the work that the program's doing, but I want to go somewhere else in terms of what I'm exploring in science. How hard is it to move out of that? So I think relatively easy as an undergrad. So I'll give you two examples. So one is me. Um, so my area of biology as an undergrad is totally different than what I do now. I actually switched fields when I went to graduate school. And that's something that is easy to do at that point, much harder now, right? I'm not going to go and change fields right away. I could maybe change models and kind of alter my questions based on the data that I'm collecting. Um, but I'm probably not going to change too much now. But as an undergrad, Certainly, you definitely can. Um, for Rise Bio students specifically, because they're starting as freshmen, right, and they get their project completed in you know the sec- the first semester of their sophomore year, what we do then is we I help them identify if they're interested potential research labs that they might want to join. We actually, I do a survey and have them fill out, you know, what are you interested in? Have you looked at, you know, any particular folks on campus that you might be interested in working with. And I sit down and talk with those students and have a meeting and kind of say, okay, based on what you're interested in, here's some people I would recommend. And I help, you know, kind of like introduce them. And and so I've had students join different labs with very different types of biological research right out of the program. So they're not kind of pigeonholed in my area of interest because they worked with me, right? Some of them have chosen to continue working with me because they really liked it. But others have said, you know, I really like this experience of research, but what I really am interested in is this other research. And they've done it. So I think that's not really an issue at that level, right? Like if I were to switch careers, right, you know, and switch directions and be like, okay, so I'm a you know, a neuroendocrinologist right now, but, and I decided I'm going to be whatever X, Y, Z, like that wouldn't work right now, but I don't want to, right. I'm very excited and interested in the research I'm doing. It kind of maybe started off as a whim, but as I've continued on in my career, I'm like, no, this is what I'm really excited about. Right. As an undergrad, it's not that way because you're not, not that you're not invested in what you're doing, but you're you're not as experienced. You don't know what's out there, right? When I was applying to graduate school, you know, I, so for me, I was interested in animal behavior, but I didn't know what I was interested in. 
there's lots of things you could study. And I realized throughout the course of my undergraduate training that what I was really interested in was kind of underlying physiological mechanisms, right? So what's happening in our hormone system, in our brain, that's causing these animals to behave in a particular way. And that's why I changed fields because I knew that what I was doing wasn't answering those questions and it wasn't as intriguing to me. So I could change because I wasn't at a point in my career where that would really drastically change what I'm doing. So I I would say that, I don't know if that answered your question, but I would say as an undergrad, it's pretty easy to switch. Yeah, I I think it does because I, I just wonder about, you know, how we're influenced by the things that we research from our peers, from our mentors, from people that, you know, we begin with. And it seems like like you were addressing before, a big limitation is knowing where to look, mm-hmm. not in the work itself, but how to find new people, how to find new questions. The best way to decide what career path you want to go on, it sounds like from what, what you're telling me, is to see what are researchers working on now? What do I want to contribute from those different avenues? What sounds most interesting to me? Where do I see my questions fitting into these different parts. Certainly. I think that's definitely true. But I think, I mean, we also, you know, I collaborate with other people. When you attend a meeting, you talk to a lot of people. And so there's a lot of exchange of ideas that way. So it's not just, you know, who you worked with in your career. It's also who you've met along the way and and fostering collaborations and things like that. So maybe I will, you know, do something that I didn't expect to do because I met somebody at a meeting and we had a conversation and we were both like, Hey, I know how to do this. And you know how to do that. And we could ask some really cool questions if we work together. Um, and so I think that's a lot of how, um, new ideas really come, um, come from is, you know, that exchange of ideas from people with different backgrounds, kind of back to your point before and getting that kind of the ball rolling on kind of asking some of those questions. And then I come back to your point of if you don't share your information with others, your findings with others, they're not really valuable or beneficial because the reason we look into things in science is to move the conversation forward, to learn more, to discover. And if we're not sharing that, then we're not contributing to that conversation. And it seems like that's such a big part of, again, we could have a whole separate conversation about how the science community communicates with the public, but just communicating with each other Mm -hmm. and having that confidence to do so, knowing the process about how to go about doing that is just as valuable as the science itself. Because it seems it's a big limiting factor for many people that might be very smart, might be good at memorizing biological concepts and information, but applying it and sharing it can, can hold them back from success. That's yeah. the, I think what I'm hearing overall. I think that's true. Right. I mean, you know, in a lot of ways in science, if you don't get a grant, if you don't publish, right, you don't, you don't succeed as a, at least as a, you know, in a, as a professor or something similar. Um, and, and a lot of that is back to salesmanship, right? You have to sell your ideas to whoever's reviewing your paper or to whoever's reviewing your grant. And if you can't do that well, you're not going to succeed, right? But I would also argue that it's really important to communicate, not just to scientists, but also to the general public. You know, and so we do a lot of outreach, scientific outreach to the general public um, through Rise Bio or through other just kind of kids in STEM type stuff, um, because I think it's important and it's valuable. And, and that's something that scientists should be doing, because if we don't do it, no one else will. 
um, and it's important. So I think communication at all levels is very, very important for science and and probably most fields in general. Yeah, um, what I'm finding yeah. conversations I have with everyone about mm-hmm. every subject, it's talk to people, don't be afraid to talk to people, mm-hmm. share your ideas, make mistakes, keep doing it, right? It's a, mm-hmm. everyone already knows it and yet it's still difficult for us. Yeah, but it's it, but it's so valuable. You get you learn so much when you start doing something like that, and you you get different perspectives that you might not have expected. You know, just have by having small little conversations. So you know, I think it's really important at both you know casual levels, but also you know more uh, you know published type work as well. So great. Well, thanks for talking with me. I appreciate. Yeah. It. Uh, is yeah. there anything you're working on right now outside of what you already talked about? Uh, that that's interesting. Do you have any things you're wrapping up right now, a paper that you're working on, anything you're just starting that you're interested in sharing outside of the, the kind of rise program. That's your, your own research. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you could get me talking about my own research for forever. Let's see. So I have one of my current graduate students is finishing up this semester and he's been looking at, um, really just understanding how, you know, they, these lizards, I keep talking about, um, you know, we talked about these extremes, right? Breeding and non-breeding, but at some point they have to transition. They have to go from the breeding season to the non-breeding season or the non-breeding season to the breeding season. And, um, you know, we know that environmental cues can play a big role in that. So changes in temperature, changes in photo period, how long the day length is, that kind of stuff can really influence that. And my grad student is just finishing up a project where we're looking at kind of this transition from a non-breeding to a breeding state, but we kept all the environmental conditions the same. So they're laboratory house lizards. We didn't change anything except we looked at them in October and we looked at them again in basically beginning of February. And we're starting to see that they're actually starting to change a lot of their physiology to be ready to breed. So they're starting to transition in the absence of environmental cues, which is very interesting because how do they know for one? Mm -hmm. And the next question is, well, what's changing? What's causing that change? And so that's going to open up a whole new um, kind of avenue, I think, in my lab, because we're seeing this real big difference um, in just a couple short months with no changes environmentally. So what's causing that change, right? It's not something environmental. So it's something internal. I have some ideas. It's probably something related to kind of what the system that controls daily rhythms. Um, But I don't know. That's my hypothesis. So that's kind of the next area of research we're probably going to go into. Got it. Uh, Interesting. Did you make sure to take all of the calendars out of the lab just in case... (laughs) or did you remove all your Hawaiian shirts under your lab coats? So oh yeah, for sure. Definitely. They didn't get to know what time of year it was. Yeah. A quick shout out to your father who probably <laughs> just shook his head. Oh, I'm sure he gave you a double head slap there. Yeah. Thanks again for talking with me, Rachel. Yeah. Great. Thank you for listening to Pass Your Passion. Remember, as always, to pass your passion because you don't know who you're going to inspire next.